0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Timothy, the first one, 1 Timothy and chapter 1. We're going to be reading together uh, from verse 3 up to verse 17. Before we do so, let's ask for God's help. Lord God, this is your word. It is but a dead letter to us apart from your spirit. We long to hear your voice. And so, Lord God, we pray. Would you be with us by your spirit? Would you help us to see something of you and your character and to be called to response, to respond with our lives? We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, That the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to approach this passage and particularly focus your attention on the idea of abundant grace. Abundant grace. We find that in verse 14, don't we? It says, "'And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant.'" Paul's talking about the grace that was shown towards him. And he follows that up with an illustration. His own life is an illustration of the exceeding abundance of God's grace. He says that in the faithful saying, verse 15. This is a faithful saying uh, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Indeed, the whole force of Paul's emphasis here on the exceeding grace of God comes from three things. First, him considered naturally as a sinner, his natural condition. Secondly, the salvation that was given to him in Christ, and then thirdly, putting these two things together to show off the exceedingly abundant grace of God. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to consider this abundant grace which is freely given to all those who turn from rebellion against God and turn to Him. Grace that should assure us, grace that should challenge us, grace that should humble us and lead us to praise and holiness of life. I want to exalt this abundant grace in three ways, the same three ways that we see in the passage. First, I'm going to think about sinner. Paul is a sinner. Secondly, Savior, Christ our Savior. And third, abundance. Those are my three points. Sinner, Savior, and abundance. So, the first thing I want to consider with you is Paul in his natural condition. Before Christ's invasion of his life, Paul was a great sinner, the chief or foremost of sinners, he says. Indeed, there is a a sense that considered in himself, considered apart from Christ, he is still the chief of sinners. That's in the present tense when he says he's the chief of sinners. And uh, we see this in the second half of uh, verse 13 and then again in verse 15. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. And then also in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Here and in all of Scripture, sinner is not just someone who does things that are considered societally bad, A sinner is a rebel against God, one who is going against God's ways, however good they might seem on the outside. That was exactly the thing that Jesus said to Paul, then Saul, when he confronted him on the road to Damascus. If you don't know that story, he was a persecutor of the church. He was going to uh, another city to persecute Christians and God in Christ appeared to him, knocked him to the ground and spoke to him. And one of the things he said was, you are persecuting me. You're opposing me. And Paul was a sinner, one opposing Christ. He was a sinner like all of us by nature. We have all inherited the sin of Adam, and he was this eminent persecutor of God's people. And I want to consider Paul the sinner with you this morning. I want to consider with you that Paul was a respectable sinner. We're not talking here about a mass murderer. We're not talking about a child molester. We're not even talking about an abortionist. All those are great sinners. Don't get me wrong. But we're talking here about an eminent and zealous theologian and religious leader. That's what Paul was, right? Sometimes we can forget that when he says this. He was an eminent and zealous theologian and religious leader. He tells us some of his glorious uh, qualifications as a religious person in Philippians chapter 3. He was um, circumcised on the eighth day that uh, sacrament of the Old Testament that was given to all males of God's people. Uh, he was at the stock of Israel. That's God's people. That means he was a covenant child from his earliest days. Um, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He could trace where he belonged in the people of God. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, we might say a Christian of, of Christians. He was um, what everyone would have recognized as really uh, zealous and firm for the faith. He was a, a Pharisee following a sect. They were very uh, careful and zealous about following God's law and were known for that. And he was zealous in rooting out what he saw as heresy. He was, that's why he was persecuting the church. He saw the Christians as heretics, basically. So he was a respectable sinner. And that's important for us to remember. Not all sinners, not even, as Paul says, the chief of sinners was someone who was involved in icky, horrible things that society sees as as terrible. There is sin which is respectable. And Paul, the chief of sinners, was a respectable sinner. His sin was also aggravated sin. You know how this works in law. You have burglary, right? And then you have aggravated burglary when someone breaks into your house and threatens you with a weapon of some sort. And that is worse than if they just broke into your house otherwise. It's aggravated burglary. Well, his was aggravated sin. It was sin against knowledge. Now, you might be thinking, he says he did it ignorantly and that's true. But what he's talking here about is that he did it not having his eyes opened by faith to the fact that Jesus was Lord. He says he did it in unbelief. So he was sincerely trying to follow God, but his eyes had not been opened to the reality that Jesus was Lord, and therefore he did it ignorantly in unbelief. However, if you think about it, This was a man who knew the scriptures inside and out. He could win every Bible memorization competition that there ever was. Um, He knew the scriptures. Um, He knew the scriptures that he would later use to prove Jesus Christ as Lord. So he had a, a massive amount of knowledge that he was sitting against, knowledge that could have led him to see that Christ was Lord he was sinning against privileges. He'll uh, go on to write in the letter to the Romans that the Jews were those who had many privileges. They had the scriptures. They had all the ordinances of the Old Testament that were meant to point them to Christ. Um, And he, above all, a religious teacher, one who was enmeshed in the religious system of the Jews, would have had that even more. So, He was sinning against all of his privileges. He was sinning with exuberance. We're told in Acts that he was entering houses to drag off men and women to prison. It it wasn't just something that he did every once in a while. He was going after them and uh, going into their very homes. Um, He was also voting for their deaths when... They came before the council. He was rooting them out of synagogues. He was beating them. He was causing some of them to blaspheme. Think about that. He was forcing them to blaspheme God. And he was sinning openly. After he gets knocked to the ground, he's blinded. He's led into Damascus. He's there for a few days, and and a man named Ananias is sent by God to uh, preach to him God's assurance and also to baptize him. But before he does that, Ananias says to the Lord, Lord, I've heard about this guy and all the harm that he's done to the church. After Paul's converted, he starts preaching Christ, and the people there in Damascus say, isn't this the guy who's known for destroying the church. His sin was public. It it wasn't just something that was done in a corner. But he was famous for his opposition to Christ. So, he was a respectable sinner. His sin was aggravated by knowledge, by privileges, by exuberance, and by the openness in which he sinned. And also, he says here, he was the chief of sinners. Now, certainly some of that has to do with the aggravations that we've just thought about. Uh, Opposing Christ by persecuting his people is a particularly terrible sin. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We're so horizontal in our thinking that we think that, terrible harm that is caused to other people is a much worse sin than persecuting the church. But actually, persecuting the church is an incredibly terrible sin because it is directly against God in that way. So, part of it is uh, all the aggravations that we've talked about, but there's also, I think, personal humility here. Remember that, that parable of Christ, where a Pharisee goes into the temple and he thanks God for how good he is, how much he tithes, um, how a great a guy he is. And then there's a tax collector, a publican off in the corner, and he is convicted by his sin. And what does he say? God be merciful to me, the sinner. As if there were no other sinners in the world. God be merciful to me, the sinner because he was so convicted by his sin. And I think we have some of the same idea here in Paul. It's not that objectively you couldn't find someone who had more sins, but he was so overcome by his sin that he saw himself as the chief of sinners. He truly saw himself as he was. And even as a Christian, he continued to see the depth of his sin. He wrote in Romans 8, that in himself, apart from Christ, in his flesh dwelt no good thing. He cried out, oh, wretched man that I am. So, we've seen Paul, the sinner, but now I want to consider you the sinner. Paul is given to us here as an example, an example of God's abundant grace, but that's predicated on the fact that we share His sinfulness, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that all we like sheep have gone astray. Where have you rebelled against God? Where have you resisted the coming of His kingdom and His authority in your own life? Where have Are you, even this morning, even this past week, where are you rebelling against God? Where are you resisting the coming of His kingdom in your life? What sins do you have in your life? They might be respectable. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's a a lack of of self-control in ways that we normally laugh off in our society. Maybe it's a self-righteousness. Maybe it's a pride. Maybe it's respectable. What are the aggravations to your sin? Do you know that if you have been sitting in church all your life and you sin, that that's worse than if you have Do you know that if you're a covenant child and you sin, you, that's worse than, than if you're not because of the privileges that you have? Do you know that sometimes when you really go for your sin with exuberance, that's worse? Do you know that when sin is open, it's worse before God? What are the aggravations of your sins? And when you truly consider your sin, when you look at the blackness of your own heart, can you muster to say with Paul that you are the chief of sinners? So often we try to say, well, yeah, I'm bad, but not as bad as that person over there. Paul's not doing that here. What about you? Can you look at the blackness of your heart and say, I am the chief of sinners? We've been considering sin, but let's not forget this passage is about the exceeding abundance of God's grace in Christ. That, of course, is powerfully illustrated by God's work in the life of Paul, as we've been seeing. Again, that faithful statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We've said there's three parts to that. There's Paul's sin, there's salvation in Christ, and then there's putting those things together to show the exceeding abundance of God's grace. We've thought about sin But now we need to think about Christ, our Savior, Christ the Savior. We read here in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceedingly abundant. And throughout uh, the verses that surround that, we have three indications of the salvation that Paul is talking about. One is the word grace, the other is the word mercy, and the last is the idea of everlasting life. Grace, you know this, many of you, is an undeserved gift. It is the gift of God Himself. It's the gift of all His work on our behalf. It's the gift of His empowering strength by His Spirit. All of these things, and all of these things are found in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, in being connected to him. This was true in Paul's own experience, that he was given much grace. Think about it. God sought him. Paul was his enemy. Paul was his sworn enemy. There was no reason for God to seek Paul, and yet God sought him. God arrested him Paul thought he was going to Damascus to arrest people and take them back to Jerusalem. God had something else coming for him. God arrested him by knocking him down and bringing him to himself. He called him, he cleansed him, he converted him, and he entrusted Paul with a ministry. Acts 26, Jesus said to him, rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. And Jesus empowered Paul. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And we see even in this passage that he produced holiness of life in him. Faith and love. He says here that the grace of God was abundant to him with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This was given to him as a gift. The ability to trust upon God and the ability to live in his ways. That's what love to God is, and love to others. To put all of this in theological terms, he was given regeneration, he was made new, he was reborn, he was justified, that is, his sin paid for and declared righteous in the righteousness of Christ. He was being sanctified, his sin subdued, and the righteousness of Christ given to him practically, and more was to come in His glorification. All of gift, all undeserved by Paul, all of grace. There was mercy too, mercy, a removal of a just penalty. One definition for mercy is clemency and compassion shown to a person who is in a position of powerlessness or subjection, or to a person who has no rights or claim to receive mercy. That was Paul's situation. He had no right, no claim on God for him to forgive his sins and make him a powerful preacher of his gospel, one who would plant churches all around the Mediterranean. One who could later say that he was going to God with confidence because was laid up for him the crown of righteousness. He had no claim on God, no claim to receive that, but he was given it by mercy. And in front of him was everlasting life. We read there that he obtained mercy uh, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Everlasting life is true life, life in communion with God that never ends. Full life, a life that uh, involves every aspect of life, and that we will enjoy one day with him in a restored creation but which is free from all the things which it because of sin, free from people doing wrong things, free from sorrow, free from pain, free from all of this, but most of all centered on God and love and service and communion with Him. That's everlasting life, and that's what Paul had been given. He was treated graciously, he was treated mercifully, and he had in front of him everlasting life. And all of this was in Christ. Verse 12, I think Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Verse 16, that in me first Jesus Christ might show long suffering. This grace, this mercy, this eternal life were not just gifts that could be separated from Christ personally. Grace, brothers and sisters, grace, friends, is not just a force. Mercy is not just an idea. Everlasting life is not just a benefit like an everlasting holiday. It is only in personal and spiritually being joined to Christ that these things can become yours. It's only in being personally and spiritually joined to Christ that these things can become yours. It would be like, imagine with me a child, and perhaps you children can imagine this with me, a child who has loads of things because they're connected to their father, right? They have um, food on the table, they have clothes, they have a bedroom They have a house to live in. They have holidays. They're educated in school or at home. And it would be like them saying, I want all those things, but without you, Daddy. That's unthinkable, right? They they couldn't just um, have all those things without being connected to their Father because it's because they're connected to their Father that all those things flow to them. And it's like that with us and Christ. Jesus Christ is one who is full of benefits for us. And as we come to him and know him, he showers those benefits on us. Jesus Christ is a full and overflowing savior with a full and overflowing salvation. But is he your savior? Have you been sought, arrested, called, cleansed, converted. Are you being empowered? Not just empowered for whatever you want, but empowered to love and serve God according to His ways. Is there fruit of godliness in your life? However small, it doesn't need to be massive, but is there fruit in your life? Do you know deep in your heart that you have been shown mercy? Is your greatest hope not to just get through the next week or to get to retirement or whatever it might be, but is your greatest hope everlasting life with Him? These are important questions. Important questions because if you cannot answer them in a way that shows that Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you are still in your sin. You're headed for defeat and destruction and shame and torment forever and ever. That's a serious thing. It warrants serious reflection on your situation. On the other hand, if you can answer yes, yes, Jesus Christ is my Savior by grace. I have been shown mercy. Everlasting life is ahead of me. If you can answer yes, then Christ is yours. Christ is yours in your battle with sin and the devil. Christ is yours when you're ridiculed by the world. Christ is yours in loneliness and discouragement. Christ is your core identity, as Paul would later write. I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me You may have been the chief of sinners I hope in a sense you feel yourself to be the chief of sinners in true recognition of the depth of your sin. But if you are in Christ, if Christ is your Savior, then you are in Him. And hear these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. He is your Savior. We've seen sin, salvation in Christ, Now we need to put these things together and see the abundance of God's grace. We see that, I think, in two ways. One is depth and the other is length. Paul's sin was deep. He was a blasphemer. He was an insolent man. He was a persecutor. What is he saying here? He was saying the pit of my sin was truly deep. That might be hard for us to understand because, again, we often think of sin in terms of other people. But if we have a radically God centered idea of life, then these sins are worse. And I say this advisedly sins like blaspheming, persecuting God's people, those are worse than even childbirth abuse or radical sexual perversion because they're a direct attack on God himself. And Paul is saying, I was guilty of all that. But God's grace reached down that low. That's what he's saying. God's grace is so abundant, so big, so glorious, that it reached down that low. He's also saying that there is a length to God's grace. He talks about long-suffering, verse 16. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering. God had been patient with him. He bore with him. He didn't just strike him down immediately when he started to sin in these terrible ways. He could have done that. He did that at other times. One of the Herod's. Took glory to God and he was struck down immediately. But he didn't do that with Paul. He bore with him over time. There was a length to God's grace. What this depth, this length, is describing is the abundance of God's grace, the exceeding abundance of God's grace. Have you ever gone to a party? And you go and you look at the the table spread with food and you're just like, how am I ever going to eat all of this? There's just such an abundance here. Sometimes when Anna packs us picnics when we're going out someplace, I often think there's just so much we can't possibly get through it. There's an abundance have there been times in your life where you've just been shown kindness that you know you didn't deserve and you just feel like you're, you're uh, swimming in, in goodness? Uh, We felt like that this summer when we went back to America and there was so many kind, thoughtful things that people did for us. We just felt like one of the themes of that time of visiting supporting churches was uh, God's grace and, and abundance to us. Have you ever had experiences like that? Well, multiply that by a million Multiply that by the highest figure that you can imagine, and that is the exceeding abundance of the grace of God for you. It goes down to the depth of your sin, that covers the length of your sin. You see, Paul was a great sinner, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ was greater and more abundant still. Still. We don't serve a stingy God. We need to hear that. Sometimes I think we think that. We don't serve a stingy God, brothers and sisters. Your sin is not too bad. Your problem is not too big. Your disappointment is not too deep. Your tasks or duties are not too hard for the abundant, the exceedingly abundant grace of God. Do you think that? Well, have you heard of your exceedingly abundant God? Have you heard of his exceedingly abundant grace? Look at Paul's life. Look at the chief of sinners. He obtained mercy so that in him first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. That includes you and me. And this grace is for anyone who will turn from their sin and turn unto Christ. Well what do we do with all of this? The first thing I want to exhort you is belief. If you are here and you cannot say that Jesus Christ is your Savior, you are hearing about His abundant grace. You are hearing about all that He has done to provide for you, that your sin might be wiped away, that you might have reconciliation with Him, that you might know Him forever and ever. Do not harden your heart to that. Do not turn from this God who is Exceedingly abundant in grace towards you. Or perhaps you need to be encouraged. Perhaps you're so full of your sin. You need to hear that if God had grace enough to overflow Paul, he has enough grace to overflow you and all of your sin. Be encouraged, dear brother and sister. Don't fill your mind with your sin, but look to Christ. You know, many of you, that that wonderful quote from Robert Murray McShane, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. I'd also say praise Give praise and honor and glory to our God, brothers and sisters. Do that now. In a moment, we're going to sing Great God of Wonders. And I want to challenge you how much joyous praise can we fill this building with in a moment when we sing that? Do it in this service, but do it every day throughout your day, in your heart, in your thoughts, in your words. Praise God, this God who has shown you abundant grace. Be humble and depend upon him. You know, there's a tension in the Christian life, one of many, but one of them is that as we grow in the Christian life, we grow in holiness and in greater victory over our sin. We develop godly habits and we more and more bear the fruit of the Spirit. However, At the same time, as we're growing in all these things, we're also growing in awareness of the breadth and depth and seriousness of our sin. And you know what that does? That means that on the one hand, we can grow in joy and confidence in the Lord, but on the other hand, we know that all the advances that we're making aren't due to us. We are more and more convinced that there's nothing about our success that's down to us, that we are completely and utterly dependent upon God's exceedingly abundant grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you look at the depth of your sin, as you look at the exceeding grace of God, grow in humility and dependence upon Christ. And in that humility and dependence, be holy. Grace comes with faith and love. That's what it did in Paul's life. Trust in God and obedience to His Word. If you're not striving after holiness, if you don't hate your sin, if you don't love righteousness, you've not truly understood on the one hand that you are the chief of sinners, nor on the other hand that God has glorious, abundant grace for you in Christ. And lastly, I would say, don't keep it to yourself. If you are full of joy, because yes, I see my sin. Yes, I can say that I am the chief of sinners. But yes, oh, what a glorious Savior I have. Oh, how overflowing His grace. Oh, how abundant His grace. Don't just keep it yourself. Speak to those around you this afternoon about it. And more than that, make it a theme of your life so you're speaking to your neighbors and your friends and your family and those around you about it. Be motivated to do things like go out with us on Saturday and speak to people on the streets of Newcastle about this. Don't keep this grace to yourself. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your exceedingly abundant grace that has been shown to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Humble us, but oh Lord, humble us to raise us up Stripped a little more of our pride. More and more dependent upon you. Seeking to live for you. And enthralled. Filled with glory and wonder. At the exceeding abundance of your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.